welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Yeah, so starting with a prayer, I guess the serenity prayer sounds good. So will you please join me in the we version of the serenity prayer, which can be found at the end of the 12 and 12. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not ours be done. Okay, so I'm um, just starting my stopwatch here. Uh, and um, yeah, thank you so much for, for asking me to share. I always uh, like uh, like to think that actually uh, being asked to share on uh, at a meeting or wherever, it's actually a, a service that the, the group does to me, not the other way around, uh, because as a sexaholic, I need to share. You know, that's the first line. Uh, really, in the in the personal story in the white book, you know, it reminds me that I I need never forget, or I need never forget. I don't have to forget uh, what it's like for me. And um, yeah, so the topic is um, the topic is living sober. Um, and um, I guess the the first thing I have to share really is that uh, I I know a lot about not living sober or living in an unsober uh, unsober way. And um, you know and you know, for me, of course, there is a, I guess, what is a fairly usual story of um, acting out, uh, which for me uh, started when I was about 13 and um, went on all the way until, I, you know, when I was about um, uh, 31. Uh, so that's, what, 18 years of, 18 years of uh, uh, experience with uh, with acting out and and living in an unsober way with regards to you know with regards to lust, um, but also it wasn't just lust uh, for me. So there were other things involved as well, and, and I'll mention that um, in in a little while because uh, I want to to mention you know sort of progressive surrender. I guess what that's meant for me. Um, but also, uh, you know, so, so, you know, I, I started acting out when I was 13 and I, you know, I, I reached, uh, SA 11 years ago, in fact, 11, pretty much around this time, 11 years ago. And, uh, but I only got sober in May of 2011, uh, for which I'm really grateful. Uh, in fact, sobriety is my top number one gratitude every single day. And every single time I go to sleep at night, uh, I say, you know, thank you God for keeping me sober, uh, because, those 18 years of acting out destroyed me, uh, really. They did destroy me from the inside. And also, it wasn't just the acting out, uh, but it was the the unmanageability. So that, for me, is a large part of my experience with living in an unsober way was, was the unmanageability. By the time I came into the fellowship, I, I was living in a sort of waking nightmare in some ways, um, my sleep, which had been very good throughout my teens and early 20s, was completely shot. Um, I was using lust to try and fix my insomnia, but it didn't work anymore. So I'd started using alcohol by the time I came into the program. Um, I, I was terrified of, of my night times because, um, because I didn't know when I was going to get a night of sleep or not. And very often I had 
day after day after day of just living in this sort of twilight zone of tiredness and craziness. Um, I would lock myself in the office at work to get some sleep. Um, and then I would have to medicate with alcohol and lust to sort of make it through the day, make it through the evening, make it through the night. I was riven with fear. Uh, I lived in fear. I lived in anxiety. Uh, I lived in control. Uh, I was desperately trying to control everything around me and it wasn't working. And it was a very painful place to be. And the control, of course, also fed into the fear, you know, so you know, I, I remember when I came into the fellowship, I was I was doing things like, you know, I, I was working in central London, uh, living about an hour and a half away. And I would get home maybe 7, 8 p.m. Um, and I would um, immediately start worrying about the day after, you know, what, what am I going to do? You know, what's the, how am I going to make it tomorrow when I have to wake up at whatever, you know, six in the morning, you know, uh, where can I put my clothes? So I put them on very quickly. Uh, will I be able to get enough sleep? And then when I've put my clothes on, um, how long is it going to take me to get out of the house to get onto my bike um, and to get down to the train station? Okay, but what if I get a puncture, you know, in my tire? Uh, and what? Uh, okay, and after that, where do I park my bike so that I have the shortest walk to the train station? Uh, in the train station, there are four ticket machines. You know, which one do I use? And what if the one I want to use is broken? And what if the next one is broken? And what if there's a queue? And will I have enough time to buy myself that really strong coffee I need to survive the train journey? Okay, and if I don't, uh, what will I do? What on earth am I going to do? How am I going to survive? And then on the train, what if I can't get on my favorite carriage? You know, what if it's too crowded? How am I going to deal with my anxiety, with my claustrophobia, with my agoraphobia? Um, and then on the train, of course, I'd be lusting after the women I could see on the, you know, on, on the train, and that would calm me down. And then I would get to work, go through work, you know, completely, you know, in a very crazy way, tired, lusting, probably acting out in the workday as well. Uh, and then on the way back back home, it would be exactly the same thing, the type of, you know, the anxiety, the control. I would start worrying about when I should be leaving work to get the, you know, to walk to the bus stop because I couldn't use the, the underground by then. I was too anxious to use the underground. So I would get the bus, get the bus to the station. I would have to, I, I was calculating by minute, you know, could I get to the station in time so I could, you know, chuck down a, you know, a pint or two of beer and, uh, you know, would they have my favorite beer, which by then was edging towards, you know, the stronger and stronger varieties. Uh, and, uh, you know, would I then have enough time to pop to the off license and, uh, you know, and buy something and, um, you know, to have on the train and then on, you know, on the way back, could I stop at the off license? Would it be closed? But, you know, and then of course, when I got home, then it was, that's it. I'm home. I can act out now. Uh, and, uh, and that was kind of, that was kind of like, you know, a snapshot of my 24 hours, not a nice way to live, uh, a very unsober way of living. Um, and, uh, and inside it was a completely corrosive way of living. You know, I was just hollowed out from the inside. Cause I think this is what my, my disease does to me. Um, and, uh, very, very isolated. Uh, you know, I thought I could relate to others or I thought I wanted this deep connection with others, but all I knew what, you know, I, all I knew to do was, uh, was to look, to lust, to objectify, to store images. So that was kind of like my my reality when I came into the program. And in my first year and a half in the program, um, things didn't get better. They got significantly worse. You know, like they say in AA, it's it's uh, it's not very nice when you have a belly full of beer and a head full of alcohol. And uh, you know, in the program, I discovered that my problem was was lust. It wasn't uh, sexual acting out, but I still couldn't get sober. Okay. So for a year and a half, I tried to do it my way. However, in that year and a half, I was blessed. Okay. I was blessed because I was shown, I had some moments 
where I was shown others' lives as they lived sober. And I think that that's pretty much all we can do as, as sexaholics. Uh, all I can do is, is share my experience, uh, you know, in, in living sober. And so one of my first experiences was actually when I wasn't sober. By then I was a loner as well, because a few months into the program, I, I moved to a city which was about three and a half hours away from the closest meeting. And, um, and I, I, I had connected to a few people on the phone, not many. But I'd connected also to somebody on the phone who I later discovered was the longest sober member of SA in the UK at the time, probably still now. And um, and I had an experience one day when I was sitting sort of, you know, depressed and uh, isolated in my office at work that he gave me a phone call and he said, hey, I'm going to be coming through town. I'm going to be changing buses at the bus station. Uh, do you want to meet up? And, and, you know, I, I, I literally worked about a five minute walk, maybe 10 minutes max to, from the bus station. And my reaction was, who the hell do you think you are, you know, to, you know, to ask me to take time out of my workday to meet you, you know, like a sexaholic, you know, why would I want to do that? But anyway, but I did. And I went and met him. Um, and I remember sort of, it sort of dawning on me that this guy was long-term sober. He was in my town for about 45 minutes to stop for a bus and he thought about connecting to the only sexaholic he knew in that town. And then we sat down and we had a mini essay meeting and he carried with him the literature. So I thought he was a fundamentalist, of course, you know, oh, you know, walking around, walking around with the essay literature and with the essay format, you know, what are you doing? It was very alien to me at the time. And I then remember him sharing to me and surrendering to me that he had, uh, he had seen that there was a, a magazine, not a pornography magazine, but some magazine with some image that was lustful on the bus that he'd come from. And that for him, it what he considered it a uh, he would have considered it a loss of sobriety if he'd picked up that magazine and taken a good long look at it. And I remember thinking, okay, this is a very different reality that he's talking about to my reality of trying desperately to white knuckle, trying to sort of look at things to see if I shouldn't be looking at them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was the way I was trying to get sober at the time. So anyway, so that's one episode. He showed me part that part of living sober is basically reaching out to another sexaholic uh, and trying to just carry the message just to be there shoulder to shoulder uh, in the way that you can. Uh, and that stayed with me. And in fact, when I travel today, I do try as much as possible to connect with SA wherever I'm going. Uh, so I try to make that my first, my first priority. And the second, uh, my second sort of glimpse in those early, early months was actually when I was, um, at the time, my, my wife was living in the Middle East uh, and I was, you know, living in the UK. I was acting out a lot. I was very depressed and I went down a very, very deep hole. Um, I self-harmed um, as a result of uh, acting out. Um, <clears throat> I think I was sort of trying to appease God and punish myself at the same time. Uh, it wasn't very, uh, very nice. And I, I didn't tell my wife, but my wife could hear on the phone that I was really, um, I, was, I wasn't in a good place. And um, she called up. A couple of SA fellows. Um, she, I, I think she got the numbers from me or something and just basically rang the alarm bell and said, hey, this guy's struggling. But anyway, I got talking to a fellow who I'd been talking to for a while. Again, he was maybe one year sober, I think, at the time. And he said to me, listen, Federico, next weekend, just come over to my house. You know, come over to my house. Spend, let's spend some, some time together. And strangely enough, I agreed because I was such an isolator, you know, that I, you know, that wouldn't have been a normal thing for me. But I agreed. And it was about a, a probably three and a three hour drive uh, to his place, uh, which was again, very out of character for me to sort of go and do that kind of thing. But I got in the car, went to his place, 
driving crazily all the way there, breaking the speed limit, um, doing lots of, um, you know, just driving in an angry way, listening to pumping hip hop music because I was hooked on rage. I was hooked on anger and hooked on, you know, I used to listen to very, to songs which had very high sexual or misogynistic content. And I remember getting to this guy's house and him looking at me because it must have been a sort of like a weird scene, you know, this tiny little car with all this music blaring out, uh, just, you know, sort of, and, and this guy, you know, sort of stepping out probably with lots of insomnia on his back. Anyway, and um, in that weekend, I experienced for the first time peace and serenity and sobriety because I was sober for that weekend, just for that weekend. But um, I lived with this essay fellow and he he showed me what it was like to live in a sober way. And it wasn't an anxious, crazy way. We went to bed at normal times. We shared a lot. Um, there was a lot of surrendering, constant surrendering uh, going on face to face. You know, he cooked breakfast for me, um, which sort of struck me because, again, it was a very sort of caring act uh, done towards me. He gave me a candle and uh, and sort of said, you know, here here you go. Uh, and I was like, yeah, what the hell do I need a candle for? And uh, and he was he was like, well, you can use it to pray. Uh, and uh, I don't think you know a candle is required in the program or in any other way. However, I used it, and it seemed to help me just get on my knees and focus. Uh, and I, I sort of did that. And I, and I experienced a sense of connection. We went bowling. Okay. So I started experiencing also the joy of recovery, the fun, the healthy sort of side of side of recovery. Um, and for me, that weekend was some sort of oasis in the middle of an absolutely crazy year where otherwise I tried to do everything, everything by myself. So that was another sort of uh, way in which I was shown sort of living sober. Um, in that year, finally, I joined AA as well. Uh, initially, just going along just to listen and, and be there because I didn't have AA meetings. And, and I was shown there as well, <clears throat> living sober in some ways, because from the moment I walked into the, my first meeting, a, a, a long-term sober of AA and uh, male and a long-term female sober of AA, both of them, one elderly and one very elderly, um, basically took me under their wing. And whenever I walked into that meeting for months afterwards, they made a beeline for me and they sort of, you know, made me feel at ease, uh, talked to me gently sort of, you know, talked about the program. And again, it was sort of, um, you know, this was a big meeting uh, for me anyway, it was maybe it used to get between 25 and 40 people, which for me was a big meeting. And, um, and again, it sort of struck me that, you know, that these people sort of had had made the effort to sort of reach out and and be there for a total newcomer. Um, and that, again, that kind of that kind of stayed with me, uh, that, that these people were looking out for the newcomer who was still struggling. And finally, the last thing that I wanted to mention um, in terms of like these stories from from my start, which kind of showed me about people living sober, is that this very elderly lady who was an essay um, a year later, uh, when I was sober a few months, I'd shared with her that I was going to move to China for a few months, a couple of months, and that I was very scared because I'd done some of my worst acting out there. Uh, and I'd felt deep isolation and had deep problems with um, using both lust and alcohol uh, when I was in the country. And uh, by then, thankfully, I was a few months sober and, you know, I'd shared it with her, uh, you know, and um, in, in China, I really connected with, with AA. There was no SA uh, in China at the time. And, um, and I got through it sober, uh, and that was a blessing. <clears throat> However, 
on the on the return at my first AA meeting, this lady gave me a plastic carrier bag, like a manky sort of, you know, carrier bag and sort of just gave it to me. And there was this thing at the bottom of it. And I I was like, what's what's this? And uh, and I opened it and there was one of these large candles uh, in, in the carrier bag. So a candle again. And uh, but it was completely burnt down to the to the bottom. So it must have been, you know, it was quite a you know large base candle and it was completely burnt down. And I sort of, you know, I had no idea what, <laughs> what she was doing. Um, was this trash? I don't know. So I said, what's, what is this? And she said, oh, it's yours. I said, okay, what does that mean? And she said, well, it's your candle. You know, I knew that you were, you know, fearful of going away for, for these two months, uh, and of keeping sobriety. And so I prayed for you every night or every day, whatever it was. And I lit a candle as I prayed. And that really struck me because this was a big candle. <laughs> you know? So it was like, okay, there must've been some praying going on there. And so again, it sort of showed me that there was some sort of, you know, care there going on for the going on for the newcomer. Um, I was also shown after I got sober, uh, a few months after I got sober, I had the real, I you know, I count this today as miracles of recovery and sobriety. You know, thank God for this. But I I I got to it to two workshops. I got to a twelve step workshop where I was shown how to work the twelve steps over the course of a weekend. And I got disabused of the notion that I had, which was that uh, in order to work the steps, I needed to, you know, ponder and think and spend, you know, weeks and months, you know, crafting a perfect step four as if it was war and peace. Or, you know, that was kind of like my attitude. And it was all so deep and, you know, and also, you know, it needed all to be so convoluted. But over that weekend, I kind of got hammered through the steps. And and it dawned on me that actually, no, this wasn't some sort of big, long self-analytical process that needed to take months, but that actually these steps could be actioned on a daily basis. Okay. And so I worked the 12 steps uh, in, in a workshop. I've since done it again to a th- uh, another couple of times in a workshop-based setting, um, as well as uh, delivering a workshop uh, this earlier this year as well to the, to the Italian fellowship, uh, which was a great experience for me. Um, and, and the second workshop I got to, thank God, was... Um, a 12 traditions workshop. And I thought I'd been conned because I thought it was a 12 step workshop. But then I found out that the speaker was going to do the 12 traditions. And I thought the traditions, they're just things we read at the end of the meeting. What on earth is the point? Well, the point of the traditions is living sober in fellowship and they apply outside of the fellowship as well to family, to work, etc. And again, I, I feel so it was such a spiritual experience. You know, it was such a spiritual experience in that 12 traditions workshop. I remember the speaker in that traditions workshop stopping his speech and sort of when we're talking about, um, I can't remember what tradition, and he just sort of said, can you feel, you know, the higher power here? And yes, I could. And I think people around me could as well. There was just something so deeply spiritual about both the 12-step workshop and the 12 traditions workshop, which was, it just absolutely, absolutely blew me, you know, uh, blew me away. Um, and so, you know, and, and so for me, all, all those things were ways in which early on when I wasn't sober, but in the program, but then later on, when I came into the program, were all ways in which people started to show me how to live sober, you know, and, you know, reaching out to newcomers, working the steps on a daily basis, getting through the steps, because you can go back through them again, you know, and, and deepen them if, if needs, you know, if needs be. And also a really big message I took out of my, uh, out of the, uh, step workshops was 
that it is important for me, if I want to live sober, it's actually important for me to have a daily program. And for it to be like a loose shirt, you know, it, you know, I, I shouldn't be turning the program for myself. I have a tendency to turn things into laws and regulations and a set of rules and tick the box, tick the box, tick the box. But actually the steps are things that happen. I think that, you know, that generate a, a change inside me, inside my heart. It's not intellectual. And before I got sober, when I hadn't really properly surrendered, I was trying to basically keep the steps on a superficial level. They were tick box things. As long as I ticked the box, then I was fine. I didn't need to, you know, do anything else. What hadn't happened was the interior change, you know, the change of heart, the change of attitude, which is the spiritual experience as explained in the appendix in the big book. Um, and um, that hadn't, you know, that hadn't, um, you know, that hadn't happened uh, for me. So having a daily program, you know, was one of the main takeaway messages as well, which for me involved and still involves today, although it's changed a little bit, but, you know, wake up in the morning, get on my knees, do steps one, two, and three, you know, admit powerlessness and unmanageability, affirm my belief that, you know, God of my understanding can keep me sober and restore me to sanity, hand over my will and my life to God, pray the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer. Do my religious prayers as well, of course, because uh, I do come from a large established organized religion, which I've learned to appreciate uh, in, uh, you know, in sobriety and connect to uh, and see the spiritual worth of uh, engaging in, 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 connecting with my higher power through that as well, of course. Um, and then um, for me, it also involves, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? it? It also involves inventory, trying to keep inventory throughout the day. I do do a daily inventory at the end of the day. I share that inventory with another fellow on the phone. Um, I make phone calls throughout the day as a way of keeping connected to the fellowship. Um, because I, you know, one of the things I really took away from that, um, from those workshops, and that was, is, has been operational in my recovery since then is that I can't get through this alone. You know, this is, uh, this is a program that needs me to be in relation to others, you know, in the program. So part for me of living sober is making sure I'm part of other people's lives in the program and outside, but also that others are a part of my life and that I make phone calls and that I share and that I really bring out everything that I don't want to bring out. I'm not one of these people who can share, you know, share in a non-explicit way. I mean, I can share in a non-explicit way. It just doesn't do much for me. Um, so when I share, I really try to be as brutally honest as possible. Um, and I do warn people beforehand. And generally when I need to share something explicitly, especially on the lust front, you know, I do have, you know, fellows that I talk to who I know are happy to receive that kind of, um, that kind of, that kind of share. I do not, I do not, surrender these things in a in an attitude of oh let me try and relive these lustful temptations or memories or whatever but as the white book says you know i try to do it in an attitude of surrender of sending it away of admitting that i cannot handle it but in order to admit that i am powerless over something i need to actually name that something you know i need to actually say what it is um for me it doesn't really work to just sort of call it lust and you know keep it keep it in my mind it needs to come out in the light where it's, uh, you know, <clears throat> where it gets taken away, you know, by my, by my higher power. So, yeah. So having a daily program, you know, and prayer of course, and meditation, uh, has been a part of that as well. Although I've, I've struggled on and off with meditation, uh, but it is a really important part. Um, and part of my struggle with meditation has actually been, again, me telling myself stories that I have to work the program in a certain way, but it doesn't say anywhere in the literature, you know, that I had to work it the way I'd told myself you know, to work it. So 
as I've had children in the program, I've had to, for example, change a little bit of how I do prayer, how I do meditation, the timings, maybe even the, the amount of time I meditate. And that's okay. Uh, because I think for me, part of, you know, one of the big, big, big parts of living sober is that all the recovery actions I take are ways of connecting to my higher power, ways of opening my heart to my higher power, ways of connecting to the recovery channel uh, instead of to the lust channel or the anger channel or the alcohol channel. You know, so I need to view these actions not as Federico doing the perfect prayer, Federico doing the perfect meditation, tick the box, tick the box, tick the box, but as ways of I, I'm reaching out to my higher power by doing this prayer. I'm reaching out to my higher power by making that phone call. I'm reaching out to my higher power by reading a couple of pages from whatever, you know, whatever item of the you know book in the literature. Uh, I'm reaching out to my higher power by going to a meeting or by doing service. Um, so th those are all, you know, I guess, so I guess for me, I guess what I'm getting at is part of living sober isn't, it's about taking these actions, but it's about sort of maybe for me taking the actions with the attitude of, it's not just a little action. It's, it's a way of connecting to, to what's keeping me sober, you know, which is the miracle that, you know, that is happening on a daily basis, you know, daily basis for me. Um, and um, and for me, that was a big attitude change because, um, you know, uh, tendentially, I don't listen to instructions. I don't follow instructions. I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, rebellious and arrogant. Um, this was kind of like an analogy for me of, of this was um, for years I've suffered with neck pain, you know, and uh, the neck pain got worse after I had kids because carrying them around, you know, kind of made my neck pain worse and my neck would get you know, cricked and would get, you know, I would get, I would get stuck with my head turned left or right. Isn't, isn't a happy place to be when you're driving, when you're pulling out of a T-junction and your head gets locked in one direction. Uh, it's kind of hard to see where you're going. And, um, <clears throat> and the neck pain wasn't getting better. So I finally decided to bite the bullet and go to see my doctor. And I had already decided that I needed an MRI scan and all sorts of other expensive treatments uh, in order to, um, to get better. And she just said to me, no, you need to go to a physiotherapist. And I didn't like this, but I'm quite compliant. So I, I went because I thought when the physiotherapist doesn't work, then she'll give me the MRI scan that I want. So I went to the physiotherapist and um, the physiotherapist looked at me and, you know, said, okay, you've got this problem. Here are three simple exercises. Do them every night. It'll take about a minute per exercise and you'll get better. So I didn't, uh, I didn't do them. I thought, okay, this is nonsense. You know, he printed out some A4 sheets of paper explaining the exercises. I didn't do them. Things didn't get better. And then I went to the Madrid Convention, uh, the International Convention, SA Convention. And the first night, my neck pain was bad. And I just thought, I can't take this anymore. This is just doing my head in. I don't want to just constantly be eating ibuprofens and paracetamols. What am I going to do? Okay. You know, I'm here somewhere in, you know, near Madrid. Let's try those exercises. This is the last thing I have. I just didn't have anything else. And I tried doing the exercises and they worked. And uh, the pain's, you know, the pain is gone. I do those exercises every night. They take three minutes uh, every night and the pain has completely disappeared. And this is my experience with the steps. When I finally surrender and let go of all of my intellectualizing, of all of my arrogance, of all of my, which is a lot, uh, and of all of my, you know, my attitude of, I know better, you know, and of this, you know, this isn't really that important, you know, uh, you know, picking and choosing, uh, you know, what I want to do, what I don't want to do, 
when I let go of that, then that opens the door to, you know, to release from pain uh, and, and to living sober. Um, and I, I do remember sort of my sponsor, you know, when I was not sober, just constantly saying to me things like, you know, are you praying every day? And then I'd be like, yeah, yeah, sure I am. And then I'd think, oh, hold on, but I missed two or three days. And today I can't really be bothered. And the next day, you know, and so th- my attitude was this very lackadaisical, lackadaisical sort of, um, you know, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do bits and bobs here and there. And my sponsor isn't a very directive sponsor. You know, he doesn't say do this, you know, he's not a dictatorial sponsor. But I remember when I got sober and we were working the steps together, asking him, you know, at some points, okay, we're on step, whatever, step two, step five, you know, not step five, maybe step eight or whatever. How do I, um, how do I, uh, when do you want me to work this by? And he would say to me, well, Federico, I don't know, um, but why don't you just treat it another way? Why don't you just work it as if your life depended on it? (laughs) And that kind of gave me the message, you know, this isn't some sort of hobby, you know, I need to get on it and I need to, um, you know, to actually, you know, to actually work these steps, you know, in my daily life and, and, you know, and I've got to surrender in order, you know, in order to do that, um, as well. Um, so yeah, so I think for me, that was, um, you know, that was, you know, that was, uh, that was important. I mean, the, the final thing I would say is that I think that living sober is also about just sort of keeping track of, whether the principles of the program are active and operational in my daily life. Now, of course, we can, like, for me, the principles, yes, there are the steps, but there are the principles as well that underlie each of those steps. Honesty, surrender, hope, faith, courage, integrity, willingness, humility, uh, forgiveness, um, you know, I guess spiritual growth is step 11, service, gratitude. You know, are those things going on in my daily life today and if they're not, you know, can I do something? Can I take some action, you know, in order to make those, make those, you know, like work those principles in my daily life? You know, do I need to reconnect to some of those, you know, to some of those steps? <clears throat> and sometimes it's a painful experience. So, for example, you know, for me, uh, you know, step six, you know, step six is very much for me about willingness, you know, uh, to let, you know, to let, you know, to, to admit my, my character defects and then the humility to ask God to remove them in step seven. And I can go back into, you know, self and I can go back into self-sufficiency and trying to run the show. So, you know, with, for example, with step six and seven, one of the things I really, really struggled with, you know, uh, in the first um, uh, few years in the program, I still struggle with it on a, on a regular basis now, but a lot less was anger and rage. I had this seething anger and rage inside, you know, if you bumped into me on the street, watch out, uh, that kind of, um, or I would you know, be looking to bump into you on the street. Let's put it that way. Um, so I had this hostility inside, you know, and uh, I think Roy K talks about it in the, in recovery continues and, um, uh, a similar thing. And, uh, and, you know, I just thought, you know, I've done step six and seven. I went to that workshop. It hasn't been lifted. Clearly the steps don't work with regards to this. So I tried counseling, you know, and I talked a lot about my anger and rage for over a year. It didn't seem, you know, I got some insight, but it didn't help me when I had the anger and rage. So I tried boxing against the advice of my sponsor. My sponsor said to me, Federico, I, I, I got up to the top grade of a martial arts in early sobriety, and it wasn't that great of an idea because I had a very good idea at the end of it how to hurt people, but it didn't help me with anger. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try it with boxing. And I did boxing for a while, and, um, and exactly the same thing happened to me. You know, it was great exercise, but it just gave me good ideas about how to punch people. Um, and then finally... Um, 
my my sponsor had also by this time, I think, gotten a bit exasperated with my struggling with step 11. And he said to me, look, get some outside help, go and talk to a priest. You know, these, these guys do it day in, day out. It says it in the big book as well. Go and talk to them, get some advice. And I, and I did, and I, um, and I talked about my anger and rage and the priest helped me to see that this is where step six and seven come in. It comes in, in the heat of the moment, just like with the lust surrenders. And I started doing that on a moment by moment basis when I felt the anger temptation, the rage temptation, and it was difficult and it still is difficult um, because my pride, my, you know, my, myself is involved, um, but it seems to work, you know, one day at a time, as long as I work it, uh, you know, as long as I, I actively surrender things. So that for me became also part of living sober is understanding that, you know, those character defects come up on a regular basis and that I need to basically um, work surrender, you know, on a, on a regular, on a regular basis. Um, so, um, and, and I'll finish with this. Um, but um, one of the, one of the things I found really helpful actually in the past few months is I've been um, exchanging a gratitude list with a fellow in another country uh, every night on, we do it on WhatsApp and that's been really helpful. But recently we've also added, uh, and I start my day also with, with gratitudes uh, towards my higher power. But anyway, um, recently we've added a, just a few questions, which, which are really good for me to keep track of my program. And those questions are basically, you know, have I prayed? Have I meditated? Have I been of service? Have I done some reading from the literature? Uh, it's okay if you don't have, you know, do it every day or whatever, you know, of course. Um, you know, have I, um, uh, yeah, I've done some service, done some reading from the literature, called other fellows, etc. So it just keeps helps me to keep track of how engaged am I with the with the program today. So finally, I just wanted to finish with this. By the way, I just wanted to show you this. This is my um, uh, this is my white book, and uh, it's the white book I picked up at my uh, uh, you know in my first year in the program, and it's still uh, <clears throat> still with me today. Um, and um, yeah. Living sober, I think it's really well described on page seventy-eight because it isn't all smooth, uh, smooth times. Uh, and it says on page seventy-eight, we will try to present a realistic picture of our own experiences in recovery. We trust this will shed light on the path ahead for others and communicate in a direct and personal way how the program works for us. So that tells me the only thing I can do is share my direct experience, and my experience is thorny. You know. It isn't, uh, you know, my experience isn't that of, oh, I got sober and then became some sort of, you know, spiritual giant and saint. Uh, no, uh, it, definitely not. Ask my wife. Um, if it seems, and this is the beautiful bit, I think, you know, if it seems our feet are too much on the earth, that is because not one of us has ever worked the steps perfectly. The road was up and down, smooth and rocky. Sometimes we were surrounded by beautiful vistas. At others, we were in a fog and saw nothing but the placing of one foot in front of the other as we trudged ahead. At times, we experienced great joy. At other times, doubt, uncertainty, depression, and fear. At times, it seemed we were running with winged feet. At others, standing still, and still others that we were losing ground. But we found that once on this road, something deep within us, deep within, told it was the right path for us. We simply knew it, and that was enough to keep us going. Whatever our experience, we found it to be the greatest adventure of our lives. And I'll uh, finish with that, and thank you. Thank you so much. I think I speak for everyone where we really got a lot out of that. Um, I'm just going to uh, start off with the questions. Um, <clears throat> and there's, a, there's also a lot of appreciation in the questions as well. Um, and someone even said it's good to put a face uh, to a voice because they've heard your voice, but they haven't seen your face yet. So um the the 
your topic was about um, living sober, but there's a question here about getting sober. And because you've got, you know, a lot of experience in the program before being sober and then becoming sober and, and now living sober, what was, how did you get sober? What was the moment or, or what changed from in sobriety to sobriety? What do you recommend to those who keep relapsing? Um, that's a difficult one. I don't know why I got sober when I got sober. I, I, I have thought about this and I thought, why did I get sober when I got sober? The only thing I can really say is number one, it was a gift. Um, I, you know, it wasn't me doing it. However, for me, one of the pivotal things that happened was after a year in the program, I, I had a, you know, big lust binge, but a few days later I went to an essay convention and that was absolutely key. So I went to an essay convention in North Wales and for the first time in my life, I was, you know, I was terrified throughout the convention, but for the first time in my life, I was in a room with 50 people, 50 sexaholics who were living sober. And I remember hearing, you know, uh, you know, there were just a couple of things that stood out. I remember hearing a fellow from the Netherlands who was sharing about his story. And I remember relating to it. I remember hearing a fellow from Ireland, you know, sharing her story and her hope. And she seemed so happy when she was sharing this that I, that I remember thinking, they've got something that I want. And I felt connection. I felt peace. I felt, you know, there is, a, there is a connection at SA conventions that I've been to that I've never felt anywhere else. And I felt it for the first time and it was attractive and it drew me back. And that was the first thing. After that convention, I stayed sober for five months. The unmanageability, however, was still largely there. So after five months, I'd taken an overseas trip um, I was very unmanageable. I drank a lot of alcohol because I was a few months away from getting alcohol sober as well by then. And, um, and one day I, uh, I thought to myself, you know, I'm tired. I've drunk a lot. I'm, you know, I've been hungover. I've traveled across time zones, maybe just one image, non-pornographic image. It will make me feel okay. And what happened, what, you know, it's just like, you know, in Roy's story in the white book, I took a look at one image and five hours later I was still at it. Um, and I, um, you know, I remember calling my sponsor and again, and, and I've been sober since the day after that. And I, my sponsor said to me, Federico, if only you could hear the disease speaking through you. And that froze me. It completely chilled me. I realized that I had sleepwalked into a relapse, uh, basically. And, um, yeah. And I, I think I basically handed over and, and surrendered, you know, I was just beaten. And I was willing to go through that withdrawal period as well. Withdrawal, I think, is one of the things that got me back into acting out so many times. You know, it's it's one of the reasons I think why we why I, I had so many relapses in that year and a half is because I didn't get through withdrawal. I never got through to through that really difficult time. So I I just got the willingness to to walk through, you know, the pain, you know, the absolute pain of withdrawal, and it was horrendous. You know, when I've been through lust withdrawal. It was absolutely horrendous. Um, so I think that's the only thing I can I can really say. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks, Federico. So we have a, a multi-tiered question. Uh, we'll start with the first part. Uh, first of all, thanks for your talk. Um, firstly, what do you do if you need to share explicitly and you can't find anyone willing to share with? It's never happened. <laughs> I just keep on calling. If I need to share, I need to share. <clears throat> I will just keep on going through the phone book um, 
And um, I, I've got to say, I have a personal sort of rule that I will let myself get to 10 phone calls before I, before I stop. And it has never happened in, you know, uh, nine years and a bit of sobriety that I've gotten to 10 phone calls before either getting through to someone or someone else calling me back. And what um, if they're so, not willing to hear an explicit share? Sorry? What if they're not willing to hear the explicit share, then you'll just make the next call? Generally, the people I, I call tend to be willing to hear explicit shares, and I'm willing to hear theirs. Yeah. So I think one of the key messages here is, you know, get using the telephone. And, you know, just um, it's really important, I think, to have as wide of a network in SA as possible. Um, I couldn't just rely on, you know, just calling the same two people day in or day out. It's um, That would become a very small lifeboat. Great. Um, second part, how do you motivate yourself to work a daily program? Um, I guess it's habit in some ways. Thank you for the question. Um, I think at the start for me, it was out of desperation. Okay. So I worked the daily program because I was desperate to sober and I was desperate to not go back into acting out and the, <clears throat> just the horror basically of, of living that way. And it then just became habit. And it, it is just part of my daily way of living. Um, it's just ingrained into my 24 hour a day uh, way in which I live. So I don't, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I kind of feel like I'm dragging myself to do things like prayer. But mostly, you know, I like making phone calls. I like talking to other fellows. I like reading the literature. You know, it's nourishing. Um, and, uh, you know, I like meetings. I like the eyeball to eyeball connection in meetings or in conventions. Um, I look forward to conventions. I look forward to recovery days. Um, so it's become so, sort of more like, you know, it's a way of living, basically. Uh, great. And the last part was, uh, how long do you suggest suggest to meditate for a day? Uh, per day? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this is, a, this is a difficult one for me because when I, I, I guess in my first year of sobriety, I didn't meditate. And then I started meditating five days, uh, five days, yeah, five days a week. No, five minutes a day, five minutes a day. I started meditating five minutes a day and then that grew to 10 and then that grew to 15 and then that grew to 20. And so I was doing my 20 minutes of meditation every morning and then, uh, and also doing about 20 minutes of prayer. So it was a, sort of like a 40 minute slot at the start of a day. And I got very hooked on the time length and on the sensations of peace I got. And then I had children. And that just blew the whole thing out of the water because, as you know, kids wake up at all crazy times of, you know, morning and night. And I, I sort of learned that actually today um, what's less important is the exact amount of time. What's more important is that I devote some time to do it and to connect. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, most of the times these days it does happen. Um, so even if it is five minutes, it's okay because I'm taking that action to connect to the higher power and to be there in silence. I have to say for myself personally, yes, five minutes is okay, but I find that any less than 10 minutes, my mind seems to take a bit of time to sort of settle down and calm down. Those 10 minutes are the times in are the 10 minutes, the time period in which my mind will do everything possible to get me to stop meditating. After that, it gets more peaceful. So if I can, I think it's just helpful to, to go for a bit, you know, for a bit, um, you know, for, for myself, you know, like 10 minutes or more, if I can, 
Um, but I don't, I don't make it into a rule because like I said, you know, I've, I've tried, I've tried so much to turn this program into a set of rules. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so the next question is going back to the beginning of your, of your talk. She says she would like to know how you got over your bedtime panic as it still tortures her and she's off an up all night. Yeah. Thank you for that, Kathy. And, um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think for myself, uh, yeah, I, I definitely had the bedtime panic. Um, what I started doing with the help of my sponsor was, uh, was starting to have a real focus on again, habitually, um, habitually putting sleep hygiene, you know, as a priority in, in my, in my mind, in my, in my day. So I would, you know, instead of, you know, watching TV, playing video games, doing whatever else that was high anxiety, doing work emails, and then trying to crash into bed. I started basically trying to have a more sober uh, attitude to the way I went to bed. So, you know, to have a time for prayer, meditation, winding down, but also I would go to bed and I, um, I was quite fearful at the start of, you know, of acting out without realizing or acting out in my sleep. So, I would take prayer beads and wrap them around my hand and or and that would um would give me something physical to just keep you know keep basically it was a reminder that my higher power was there with me even though I was in bed and I also started learning um learning verses um for me that was verses from the psalms um which reminded me again uh, and it you know it can be any spiritual literature I guess but it reminded me that uh, my higher power was with me you know even throughout uh, throughout the night and that, you know, sort of he, he took care of me and I would just repeat them again and again and again, you know, for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, until I fell asleep, basically. Um, and that became part of my part of my pattern. But it took a good five years before I had, you know, before I was kind of over that um, the craziness with the sleep and the insomnia and everything else. Um, but I learned that, you know, when it happened, I could get through it sober as well. Um, and if I can't sleep, then I can also take the actions of getting up, getting on my knees, handing over to God reading some spiritual literature, not, not, not beating myself up, not doing anything exciting, which would of course, you know, impact on my sleep again, definitely not accessing the internet. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. So we have a comment saying the analogy of the neck pain was perfect. Uh, and she's going to try and remember that whatever the, the steps feel like they're not getting anywhere. Uh, the next question, thanks Fed for your excellent share. Can you give us any more help on how we avoid perfectionism and the feeling that this time I will do this right and I'll get sober? Um, yeah, so for me, I guess perfectionism feels like stress. It feels like I'm starting to, I'm, I'm, it's me, I'm alone. I've got to get everything right. I'm back in self-control, basically, you know, in control mode. I'm in charge, you know, uh, and um, and there is no higher power and there is no fellowship. So when it starts feeling stressful, maybe that's a good sign that there's something for me that is not quite quite balanced, and that maybe I need to be letting go, you know, letting go of things. Um, I, by by that I don't mean not doing things, but maybe just looking at the way I am trying to do them. So maybe that's that's just one of the one of one of the aspects um, aspects there and yeah with regards to the other part of the question which was um you know sort of oh i forget what the other part, part of the question so actually i forget the other part of the question apologies 
Okay. Um, I think we'll, we'll move to the next question. Um, the next question um, says that he can really identify with your speech. And uh, what he recognizes in particular is the way is, is doing things his own way. And he doesn't trust people. He only trusts himself. And when he gets angry, anxious, and judgmental, it's the disease talking through him. It's his will, not God's will. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, um, I, I had a painful experience with this at the end of last year, so the end of 2019. I, um, things were really tense with my wife. Uh, I'd, um, I'd get, you know, we were getting annoyed, angry with each other, and it was always triggered by me. So I disagreed with the way my wife fed my kids, uh, with what she fed them. Um, one of the things I had to give up, by the way, in progressive surrender is not only alcohol, but for me also um, video games, sugar, these things. And I was very scared of my kids developing a sugar addiction like I had. So I was constantly needling her and sort of, you know, getting annoyed at her over dinner. And, you know, I was annoyed with her because she used to hold my youngest daughter in her lap while we ate. And it meant that she couldn't eat. And I felt bad because she couldn't eat. And then, of course, um, uh, I, I started judging her and I was pushing her, you know, around things like, you know, language, you know, sort of, you know, teaching our kids um you know, a particular language, which wasn't happening and it wasn't happening well and, and this and that. And, um, and my wife was just, um, was starting, you know, we, we were just arguing and getting into all these constant, um, you know, uh, yeah, arguments and angry words. And, and, and she mentioned that she, you know, she, in, in, at some point, I think in January this year, she mentioned that she was, you know, she was really, really struggling and, um, and, and the marriage wasn't a happy place for her. And, uh, and I, and at that time, I realized um, that actually I'd, I'd gone back into that place of being in control. And I had a real step two problem there, you know, and I realized what was at the core of it was um, I was back in control. I didn't think my higher power cared for my children. Okay. I thought I had to control so that I could deliver uh, what I thought was the best thing for my kids. Uh, I didn't think my higher power was there for them. I didn't think my wife was there for them. Unless I was pushing for a particular result, they were going to, you know, become whatever, you know, street children and not eat well. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know, you know, all the, all this crazy stuff. And I realized, I realized then that it's so easy for me to take that control, to go back into self-sufficiency. And I had to basically take the action of letting go. And initially, again, it was very hard. I'd I'd go down for dinner or whatever. We'd start dinner and I'd almost have to like hold the you know, table legs to just stop myself from making those comments or to stop myself from judging. And it's like it says at the end of the white book, you know, when it talks about, I think it's in step 12 in the white book, it describes this perfectly where it talks about the, you know, the, the change of attitude between a husband and wife. It's like she detected it and things just smoothed. Um, and I, and I realized that, um, that I had to really look at my trust in my higher power. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And just to follow up on something you said, um, can you talk a little bit more about your sugar addiction and what you did about that? Okay. Um, so I'm not going to go into sort of details on it because it is it is an outside issue. But I also say I, I also have to say, in some ways, it isn't an outside issue um, because it's mentioned all over the literature in the, in the white book and and recovery continues. Roy K talks about food, fast food, movies that's been part of my experience as well is that I am constantly have a temptation to look for something that will fix me, that will make me feel better. 
Um, and, and for me, that was the issue with sugar. Um, throughout my childhood, teens, etc., I used an enormous amount of sugar. And I'm not kidding when I, when I say an enormous amount of sugar to make myself feel better. I had to get sugar sober because it was actually starting to, you know, it wasn't threatening my sobriety, but just like alcohol, I could see that it was going to basically lead me into such shame at some point that it, that lust was going to look like a solution. So I had to drop sugar just like I had to drop alcohol and video gaming because they were in the way uh, of my lust uh, recovery and my lust um, sobriety. So that was kind of my experience. I did have to go through withdrawal, um, you know, in the first few weeks after, you know, going through withdrawal from sugar, I dropped six kilos of weight uh, without doing any exercise. So that kind of shows you how much I was uh, abusing, uh, abusing the substance. Um, and I'm now very, very careful. Uh, very careful with it. It was something that basically could change my state of mind. And so I was, I was really hooked on it and it doesn't have to be addictive either. You know, so a few years ago on a, you know, I, I used to hate diet Coke and a few years ago on a hot summer's day, I drank a diet Coke. It was the only thing that was on sale. So I drank this diet Coke and it made me feel better because it was nice and cold. And I thought, Oh, that was nice. A few months later, probably about six months later, I was, you know, un uncorking a diet Coke or whatever, you know, untapping, whatever, opening a diet Coke. And I realized since that day, I'd had a Diet Coke every single lunchtime, you know, without realizing, looking for that feeling again, without realizing. So I have an addictive, you know, I have, I, you know, I, I seek those, those ways of making myself feel better. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I also, um, I've been over a year and a half now on diet drinks and I still enjoy the fizz, but um, no sugar. In fact, the funny thing is just this morning, because I only had three hours sleep, I put a whole spoon of brown sugar in my coffee at like four in the morning without even blinking. And it's the first time I've done it. And instead of throwing it away, I just drank the coffee, it's, you know. But then the thing is that I still I still treat myself to uh, to a little bit of sugar, but I've lost a lot of weight. I'm very grateful for that. Um, we, uh, we have another question in terms about in terms of uh, in the house, the, the program. How do you bring the program into your house specifically around the, the wife and the kids? Yeah, thanks. That's really important. Um, so uh, I don't try to impose my program on others, um, but with my children, I try to make prayer a part of life. That's also part of my religious tradition. But I try to, you know, we have uh, a morning and an evening prayer. My kids are fairly young, so the prayer is very short. I try to keep it as um, the least formulaic as possible. And to, to sort of, you know, and, and I really enjoy those times uh, with um, with my kids um, as well. A big part of working step 10 is making amends. Now, <clears throat> being one of these sort of side benefits of being married means that I, I get a lot of practice at making step nine amends uh, <laughs> towards my wife. And one of the things I've noticed is that my kids, especially my oldest daughter, have started making amends as well. So when things happen... Um, I've noticed that my daughter sometimes writes amends letters, uh, or sometimes, you know, she'll have a blow up or whatever, or a meltdown, but then she will make an amends. And my sponsor sort of pointed out, well, maybe if you and your wife, cause my wife is also in a program, you know, weren't doing this and practicing this on a, on a regular basis, maybe the kids wouldn't be picking up the need to, to make amends. And from my family background, certainly parents never made amends. You know, parents were always in the right, whatever happened. Um, whatever they did, there was never any sense of, uh, of, of making amends. So, you know, I think, you know, and we have, um, 
we have uh, as well, um, my wife and I have from time to time sort of business meetings. Uh, so kind of group conscience meeting type things for uh, just between her and I for just deciding things and talking things and airing things. And we try to do that a little bit like in a meeting. So one person talks, the other doesn't interrupt, um, et cetera, et cetera. So these are, I think these are just some of the ways um, in which we, um, I think the program has sort of come into, come in, come into the, uh, and also sometimes my wife will say to me, oh, it looks like you need to make a phone call, you know, when I'm starting to go off balance or, uh, you know, get irritated or whatever. And sometimes I will say to her, you know, maybe it's time to make a phone call. Um, and, and that's helpful as well as a sort of reminder that actually, you know, my behavior or her behavior, whatever is starting to look a little bit like, you know, uh, not quite on, on the straight and narrow. Thanks. Thank you. And so the, the last question is about, you know, sobriety and recovery as it goes along. And he says, I'm about three quarters of a year sober and I feel insecure about my recovery a lot. In the beginning, I was living one day at a time and felt a willingness and open-mindedness that was very powerful. But recently, I feel I'm doing a lot more thinking and living in the future of my head. And the simplicity of living that I experienced at the beginning of my sobriety seems more evasive to me. Have you experienced anything similar during recovery? What was helpful? Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I've definitely experienced exactly what you're sharing during recovery, um, sometimes for long periods of time. What is helpful for me is always to, regardless of where my head wants to go, always bringing it back to the daily program, the fact that God is keeping me sober today, that I have a fellowship today, and that my main job is to get myself you know, with God's help to the end of the day sober. And so if I focus on the actions that I can take today, the recovery actions that I can take today, that kind of helps me to realize that actually I'm living in a miracle today. You know, God's keeping me sober today. And if I'm living in a miracle today, I can trust that, you know, God's got it in hand for the future as well. But it is difficult. It is difficult for me, especially when there are situations about which I really feel strongly. It is difficult for me to hand over and trust, you know, but it's something that I do have to do. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.